it just kind of offended a lot of people. And um, I kind of at this have this thing where I'm like, if it offends that many people, I'm just going to walk away from it because that's not good. Dun, 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 dun. This week on the podcast, we have Jason Diamond. Who's awesome. Who and is awesome. How do you know him? He, write, he used to write for Flavorwire, uh, so I first came across him there. Um, he covered a bunch of the books that I worked on uh, as a book publicist in my day job. Um, and he is now at Men's Journal, and he and I know each other in the same capacity. Um, I think this is the first time we've ever spoken in person. It's actually really interesting to hear you guys talk about publishing from that insider perspective that I really don't have. Uh, there's just so much more that goes into actually launching a book than I ever would have guessed. Yeah, oh, it's enormous. I mean, it's why it's been an industry for, you know, I mean, if, if you're going to the printing press, it's like 500 years. But Take me all the way back. But realistically, this has been the industry as we see it now for over 200 years. Um, so what's Jason going to talk to us about today? Uh, his career, um, he came from Chicago. He worked at Juicy, J-E-W-C-Y, which is like a Jewish culture magazine. He works currently at Men's Journal as an associate editor. And um, throughout all of this, he had started his own like blog culture website that does an event series called Volume 1 Brooklyn. He, he's one of those, there's a bunch of people, mostly in Brooklyn, in the publishing world that are like connectors mm -hmm. um, that just know everybody. And he is certainly one of them. You basically just get to hear him like say the inside story. Also, he talks to us about uh, failing to write the definitive biography of John Hughes, um, which is way more interesting than you would think at first glance. Let's get into it. So we have Jason on the show today. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Pretty um, good. Pretty good. So, Kyle, what do you want to first start with with Jason? Um, I don't know. There's so many directions we could go. So, Jason, you've written a lot about John Hughes. Literally, um, I've written a lot about John Hughes. And I'm a huge fan of movies in general, but John Hughes tends to be one of my weaker areas. Like, oh. I've seen Home Alone. I've seen The Breakfast Club. I've seen Pretty in Pink. I like that Home Alone is the first one you mentioned. Home Alone, I, I That's don't, a good sign. I don't know if I ever I didn't, I didn't know that was him until this year. Yeah. How much people don't care about Home Alone because I have a group of friends who cares a lot about Home Alone yeah. to the point where they do Home Alone trivia and things like that. So oh, I was wow. just assumed that it was something that people recognized as one of the great American classics, but that is not the case. It's definitely one of the great American classics. And I mean, I, I wrote this thing for The Atlantic on the anniversary of it, I think in like December or November, last November, about how you basically get from Home Alone to the Harry Potter series in like two steps. How do you get there? Wait. Chris Columbus. Okay, it. that's fair. Um, he was basically John Hughes took him under his wing, and if you watch the two movies, well, not the the, whole, the two movies, but the first three Harry Potter films, I feel like you can really see a lot of the the Hughesian and the and the Chris Columbus kind of stuff, like the very like whimsical like scenes and the and the John Williams scores, and uh, and then once that series progresses it kind of actually starts to seem a little bit more like a johnny there's all the teen angst and there's all the you know the hormones and the uh so i think even though christopher columbus wasn't involved in those other films he it's definitely there so. his mark is felt yes that's uh so this is probably like the eighth consecutive episode out of eight where we've managed to steer the conversation oh towards harry potter in one way <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even think about that <laughs> We, yeah. I'm keeping track. I, I'm keeping we, score, like we yeah. actually had to cut Harry Potter conversation out of a different episode because it was literally every single episode that we did. Is it's there, still there in spirit though? Is there a podcast called Pottercast? Because I feel like uh, there has to be. Yeah. Do you guys want to start it? I'll do. Yeah. You know. <laughs> are you, you, do you did you read Harry Potter? Or are you a yeah, Harry Potter yeah. fan? I'm not a fan, but I, I read them. How are you not a fan? I'm a fan. I like the movies more. Um, the books I read just to be because I'm a weirdo completist. Um, but the movies, I think, are fantastic. I have I, I have a weird thing against people who don't like it. I'm like, why don't you like this? This is good. This is great stuff. It's a wizard and <laughs> it's magical. Uh, it's I have a great no, thing of show. Well, yeah. Speaking of magical, uh, I saw on your, your Facebook recently that oh, God. you did something called a drunk TED Talk. <clears throat> yes. What is that? It is exactly what it sounds like. Um, this guy, Eric... Invites a few writers to do to get drunk and to give a presentation. I had never seen a sober TED talk until the week before my drunk <laughs> TED talk, and I was like, 
oh, I get why you need to do this drunk because real TED Talks don't seem that fun. What did and you talk about? Guy Fieri. Oh, my it was God. Uh, the, oh, the, the theme was uh, guilty pleasures. And I was like, Guy Fieri, that's my one. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I believe everybody can be into whatever they want. Highbrow, lowbrow, I don't care. Um, but Guy Fieri, there's just something that just, I feel so dirty that I watch so much Guy so Fieri. You'd eat that off a flip flop. Right. So why, why, <laughs> <laughs> why do, why does Guy Fieri make you feel dirty? He's just gross. I mean, he's scary and creepy and I, I think I called him like the nightmare that capitalism created. Um, my, he, my twin brother is obsessed with Guy Fieri and wanted to be him for Halloween, but See, refused to shave his beard. I also think I'm obsessed with him. But, like, you know, part of the conversation that I was going to give, you know, I was, like, doing slides and stuff, and the slides are pretty great. But part of it was going to be uh, about how Pete Wells in that 2000, I don't remember now, th- 13 interview, uh, review of Guy Fieri's Times Square the place. the yeah. Fam- yeah, the most famous restaurant review in New York Times history at this point. Uh, I think he called him like the new Calvin Trillin and it, it was like it was supposed to be like not like a total it was like the whole review is an insult but that was sort of like what you do on your show makes you sort of like Calvin Trillin because you're going to these like small diners and these places that aren't like foodie meccas and they're not like owned by celebrity chefs and I was going to go in on you know it's Calvin Trillin he's great you know very important to to American food writing and then that poem happened in in the New Yorker and I was like Calentrill and he screwed up so bad. So um, I I have a very vast knowledge of that that's like at surface level. So fill fill in the blanks on that. What what poem in the New Yorker from Calvin Trillin? Uh he wrote some poem that I guess he was his excuse was he was making fun of urban foodies, um, but it was basically kind of like boiling down uh all Chinese culture to certain provinces and like how that's all that matters and it just kind of offended a lot of people and um i kind of at this had this thing where i'm like if it offends that many people i'm just gonna walk away from it because that's not good yeah uh and i read it and i kind of understood uh where some people can get upset about that Um, oh of course i mean it's like uh the the big thing last year where um, somebody pretended to be Asian American to get their oh poem. my god that was the worst yeah that was wait terrible. what is what is this I I'm, I'm name like yeah I'm I'm hazy on the details but basically somebody uh, submitted a bunch of poetry and it never got accepted anywhere so he changed his name to sound Asian and um, no it was straight up yeah it yeah. was like he lied about like changed who he his was. name to be Asian yeah yeah to sound Asian and, and like the poem got accepted. So a bunch of poems. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in one sense it proved his point, but in another, that's just like the slimiest thing you can do. Yeah. That was, that was, I I feel better about watching Guy Fieri than even thinking thinking about that. That's terrible. Well, I mean, all right, this is, you know, we're terrible at segues on this show, but, um, you know, let's back up a little bit. Um, and start, you know, with kind of like your trajectory and your career, uh, how you got to where you are now, like where you started, um, some things that you did in between. Just give us like the brief overview. Um, basically, I didn't, I didn't have like a good internship. I didn't, I didn't have anything. I moved to New York and I was like, I want to be a writer because writing is. You, you move to New York and you, that's where you go be a writer. And had those wild ideas because I'd grown up reading, you know, tons of writers from New York and. That's just how I imagined it happened. It was sort of that whole get off the bus, and I'm like, I'm here. Uh, <laughs> bright lights, big city. Bright lights, big city. <laughs> yes, I, yeah. Um, but which is actually one of the novels that uh, kind of helped me want to move to New York. I loved place. that book so much. Yeah, me too. And the movie was great too. Kiefer Sutherland and Michael yeah. J. Fox. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Uh, I actually just interviewed him the other day, Jay McInerney. Uh, he's great. Um, Wait, is he still writing? Yeah, he's got a new novel coming out. His first in a few years. Um, wow. Yeah, that was one of. The, I mean, like that was one of the books. Like you know, the Joan Didion lived in New York. I know she's more connected to California, but all these writers, you know, even the beats that I liked when I was like fourteen, and um, you know, all the punk stuff was here, and I was like, I got to move there, and you know, I'm going to be a writer. And then I got here. I'm like, how do you become a writer? I don't, <laughs> I don't get this. And uh, slowly but surely, I just kind of started going to readings. Uh, I started a blog. Uh, 
eventually I put that blog down. But this is while I was also – my idea was um, I'm going to break into writing by writing this John Hughes biography. And I spent five years doing that, six years almost, um, like chasing down all these crazy leads to find people to talk to. Meanwhile, I had no idea how to write a biography. I did not know anything about biographies. Um, I read a lot of them, but I didn't know what it took to write them. And yeah, so uh, I did not get any writing jobs. I didn't, you know, really try to get writing jobs. And then one day I just kind of had this idea. I'm like, I should just start a blog um, and maybe get some free books out of it um, because I want to write about books, but no editor is going to assign me anything because I can't get the books. And anyway, so I started this website called Volume on Brooklyn. And um, for the first like six months, it was like 40 people a day read it or something. And then I started doing events. I just was like, I'm, I used to book punk shows when I was a kid. I'm going to start booking reading events now. And, um, you know, I, it just kind of started snowballing. Like people started really caring about what I was doing, or at least they started caring about the events and the website and, that kind of gave me the courage to start like talking to editors and just being like, Hey, I've got this idea. I want to write about it. And you know, a lot of them would shoot me down. Um, but I started writing about music first. That was the first paycheck. And then, um, sites like the rumpus started popping up and I became friends with people there and I would pitch them and one thing led to another. And now I'm a professional writer after all these years. So, but your trajectory was kind of like, uh, and you know, I know this just from, researching the hell out of you but you worked at juicy.com yes. you were you know at flavor pill which is where i really first kind of came yeah, into yeah. contact with you um and now you're at men's journal right yes and you want to talk about like the culture of each of those spots and like how you progressed through yeah i mean juicy was um actually before juicy i had been a contributing editor this was my first name on a masthead uh at a magazine called heeb and Hebe was also sort of part of this the same thing juicy was it was sort of this like post 9 11 uh, new Jewish culture that was supposedly springing up. Is that still around? Because I know I that know. magazine, but I don't know if that's just like a super old... The magazine's uh, not. I know the magazine okay. isn't, but I don't know about the website. And, um, and, and just for anyone listening, Juicy is J-E-W-C-Y. Yes. It's like a Jewish culture website. Yeah, and um, that was just sort of a weird thing because I'd been doing Volume 1 for like a year and a half, and I'd been writing for various places, and... One day, my my then girlfriend, who worked for the company, was like, "Hey, they need a new editor. Can you <laughs> serendipity? <laughs> yeah, can you take over this job?" And I'm like, "I don't. I want to get out of bed. It's kind of cold. <laughs> it's like February." And then I'm like, "Wait a minute. Yeah, of course. I'll totally do that." And you know, the website wasn't even working for the first three weeks. Like it was like down. Um, nobody could access the website, and <laughs> I was still putting stuff up and. Um, it was weird. It's like, you know, it was like I was raised pretty Jewish. My family's like my father's family are Holocaust survivors. Uh, my mom's family are like old school Chicago Jews. Um, but I had never really thought I was going to be like a professional Jew. It was kind of a weird thing, you know, because they would like cart you out to like all these like events where you had to talk to funders and you had to like kind of like put on a little Yiddish, like, you know, make toss a little Yiddish in there and um accentuate. yeah I mean, which isn't hard for me because i'm also i'm all, i'm already really neurotic and uh you know you could kind of mistake me for either a Hasid or you know tevye the milkman uh but <laughs> but um i don't know i i just like it, it was a weird thing and it was a lot of fun uh and it was an interesting time and then juicy's funders kind of dried up and juicy got absorbed by tablet and tablet's an, an incredible website and They've been doing good stuff with it. But at that point, I was like, I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how to write about, find a Jewish angle for everything every day. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just kind of gave up. And at that time, Flavor Pill was looking for a managing editor for their, Flavor Pill is actually the events website. So I took over for that. Um, and then eventually went to Flavor Wire, which was kind of incredible. You know, at the time I was there, it was just like me and a bunch of really brilliant people churning out a ton of content all day that I was just, every day I'd walk away totally exhausted, but I'd be like, man, we wrote some really good stuff today. Um, and I'm really proud of it. And then I went to Men's Journal and, you know, it's... Been there for like two years? Yeah, two yeah. years in, in July, which is crazy. Um, 
Yeah, that's a whole different culture. I mean, it's connected to a magazine. That's something I hadn't been used to. Um, Do you have all the magazines like on your coffee table at home? No, I have. I have a lot of the magazines. Um, the ones I've been in there for, I have them. I keep everything. But um, no, I have a lot of coffee coffee tables on my coffee table. Uh, <laughs> put a stacked put, one on top of the other. Uh, yeah, it's actually true. I have like probably like eight coffee table books, just like. Uh, threatening to topple over and kill my cats. Well, let's let's harp on that for a second because you killing the cats. Yeah, well, the yeah, cats. of course. What are their names? Uh, Zoe and Spoons. <laughs> Spoons. That's Spoons. A, Spoons is a great cat name. Yeah, I didn't name them, but they are. Yeah, sorry. No, that's that they way better. Um, <laughs> but no, we uh, a lot of people are you know, obviously people are learning this fact now, but um, a lot of people don't realize that like the online institutions that have to do with legacy magazines and newspapers and stuff are usually separate entities. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of crossover, of course, mm-hmm. and like, you know, pretty much everything in print is also put online, but there's also a ton of other supplementary content online as well. Yes. And so you are actually like, you know, mainly online, right? Yep. And, uh, you know, if you have like a really great piece, they'll put it in the magazine or something. But yeah, kind of, how it's, does that work? That's like, that's like, you have to plan that stuff out so far in advance. And I, I've been writing online so much that I hardly, bo- I don't even want to bother because... I love what the magazine like. Ma- you you can't beat a magazine. Like it's just so beautiful. Like everything is just so laid out perfectly, and you know, fact checked and spell checked and everything. And that's great. And that's how everything should be. But I sort of like the chaos, and I sort of like being like I could see this today or tomorrow maybe. Um, so I, I I really try to stick to internet, and I, I feel people have called me out and been like. You're just you just can't get in magazines. I'm like I can get in magazines. I'm okay, <laughs> I'm doing okay, but. Um, I kind of like the uh, the fact that stuff goes up faster. and Well, there's a lot of, like, the LA Times, I think, does this. Um, I heard uh, Carolyn Kellogg talk a few months ago um, about if they have a piece that does, like, really well online, they'll actually, like, a book review or something, they'll actually we'll put, it put it in the paper. And I know papers are dailies, and you're, you know, it, it's, uh, I should know this, I can't believe I don't, but <laughs> is Men's Journal a monthly or a weekly? Yeah, it's, it's like, a monthly. It's monthly, like, okay. I think it's, yeah, it's monthly. Do you ever okay. see stories that you know will do better on the web than they would in a magazine? Or is it just more of a whether or not you want to write it for one or the other? For me personally, yeah. I mean, I think everything. I I, I I literally go into everything thinking I'm going to be writing it for the internet. I know that's really weird, um, but I just that's just how I've trained myself, um, and I don't really see a difference. I do like the idea of seeing stuff in print. Like if it's like I, I it's, you could just do more interesting things. That said, like you see like a, a site like Medium, for instance. I see what Medium's doing. I'm like some of these posts look like magazine posts and that's great um but i i don't really go into it thinking that at all um what's well, another question i wanted to ask you is you know the the literary world and the book world is so like invasive on twitter um yeah. first off is there a name for literary twitter i think it's literary twitter okay because i i always <laughs> want to call it like lit twitter or something can but we, i think can that's stupid shorten it to litter yeah. I, I guess it doesn't like, work. I, mean, that, I guess it sounds kind of derogatory. I feel like, like that's like cat Twitter might have that, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm also part of cat Twitter. Is now. there a cat Twitter? I, I mean, I've he noted, just wrote a story about books. Yeah, that, that lit hub thing kind of hit me to, <laughs> to cat Twitter. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I, I wanted to like really talk about it because basically every guest that we've had on the show is because they're like super you know prolific on Twitter. And I mean, frankly, the reason that we started doing that is because we know that we can get better engagement numbers with these podcasts. But yeah. um, it's also super interesting to be able to see like this entire other world of like the water cooler talk of the internet. And like, I mean, you probably met a million people from Twitter, right? Oh yeah, but I mean, the thing is, I was already equipped for that because I spent my teens in AOL chat rooms, mm-hmm. and you know, when you're like a lonely punk kid in the suburbs, um, that was how you you would you would finally meet those people in person. So it was like. I've been doing this for years. Like, you know, that's how I've always gotten to know people. And that's like when people were saying, if you meet people on the internet, they're going to kill you. Like, you know, that was like the, 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 in the nineties, that was sort of how people kind of saw it. Like if, if you're going to end up in a dumpster, if you meet somebody off the internet and now it's like, that's just how you do everything. Um, but yeah, I have, I've met a lot. I think, you know, at first it was like meeting people who I, I, I'd seen write for certain websites before Twitter. Like, I mean, Justin Taylor, for instance, and Roxanne Gay and writers like that who were writing for HTML Giant years ago. Like, I knew them through the writing before I knew them on Twitter. And now, you know, like, Roxanne is, like, a great Twitter presence. And Justin's on Twitter, but, you know, he's not, like, he's not. We talk about uh, breakfast sandwiches on Twitter. That's our whole thing. We have breakfast sandwich Twitter. That's 
our other. That's another community. That's my little community. It's me, Justin Taylor, Alexander Chi, uh, Amanda Bullock, uh, and Maris Kreitzman. What's your go-to breakfast sandwich? I, just an egg and cheese. I really no sausage wait, or bacon. I like, no, no. I like ham. No. Yeah, I see. I can't wait. Do roll ham. or bagel? I like it on a roll. You gotta go roll. Yeah, gotta roll, go roll. Roll is a, a bagel's a too much. Tried and true method. A yeah. bagel can be interesting. No, I've, it's, it's I've had some good ones. Everything bagel too much or bread? everything. I've had the everything. Yeah, yeah. The everything egg and cheese is too much I, bread. You get like it all kinds of crap in your teeth. Yeah, but I, I don't do it. That's why. I mean, it's nice. It's there, but I. I <laughs> I stick with the rolls. Let me um, ask you a question. Yeah. Bagel with cream cheese, is that a sandwich in your mind? Is that a breakfast sandwich? It's a bagel with cream cheese. Is it a breakfast it, sandwich though? It's an it's a it's an all all the time sandwich. All the time. Put sandwich. cucumbers yes. on so it. Not just put cucumbers no, on it, it becomes a breakfast sandwich. Jelly. What about grape no, jelly? No. I'm very very particular about this. Light schmear. You <laughs> can put some capers, you can put some onions. Maybe a tomato slice. Maybe like a tomato. Nice, nice and thin. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. you got to go thin with the tomato. Unless it's a great tomato, and then you can go thick. Yeah, if it's a great tomato, but good luck. You know, you know it's Wait, tough. really, though? Capers. I love capers. Oh, capers are the best. If capers. you have fish, especially if you have a fish. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Little locks on there. Oh, yeah. Well, all right. So Anyways. Can I, can I join Breakfast Sandwich Twitter? <laughs> yes, anytime. I have a lot of, a lot of uh, questions. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> it's totally fine. Um, so, I mean, going back to your life as an editor, you are kind of unique in the sense that you are, you know, both an editor and a writer. Usually people are one or the other. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, assign all these great stories, which I assume means that you're coming up with all these great ideas all the time. And I've seen you work, you know, in pitching you books during my day job. And, you know, you're quick. Um, but at the same time, like, you have all these, like, really great thought pieces that you write. Um, like you write about fucking punk music for the Paris Review. Who does that? Um, but, like, how does that really... How does that correspond with like assigning a book review or writing about books or like do you just like does your brain have to like change directions when you're doing something like that? I go into editing as a writer. That's always my philosophy. It's like I know there are editors who are like that's an editor's editor. You know they've got it all down and they're they will red pen you and you're, you'll learn so much from it. I love that. I I can be like that. I can be you know very. But I go into it, I'm like thinking like, how does a writer want, how does this writer particularly want to approach this story? And that's how I tell them, like, this is how I want you to write it. And nine times out of 10, I get what I want from that. And that, I've always found that really incredible. I'm like, I'm not gonna assign like blindly some writer I don't know. I'm gonna go to a writer I like and be like, hey, I want you to do this, this is what I want. And nine times out of 10, they come back with it. And it's, it's an incredible thing. Um, I mean, there's also, I mean, there's always gonna be the editing process after that, but. How often do people pitch you ideas that you're like in love with? Um, I'm always I'm I'm I would say pretty often. It's just what I can publish and what I can't, just because there is a certain tone you have to mm-hmm. adhere to and all of that kind of fun stuff. But uh, that said, I mean the writers I work with, I'm in love with. I'm, I, I genuinely I like I would uh, I would jump in front of a train for some of these writers because they're brilliant people, and I'm like I'm so I know I'm paying you. <laughs> But I mean, like with Volume One, we don't we we don't make any money. So like the writers give us stuff for free, and it's just like that's incredible. But with Men's Journal, you know, I get to work with so many writers I like, and they I think it's a respect thing. They turn in good stuff. And can, can you just, tell us what you pay them, or is that no? no? Okay, no. taboo. <laughs> Absolutely cannot. Discuss. Yeah, that's that's nah. So all right, so um, so I have a question though. But when you when you're having that initial conversation with a writer who you know who you care about, what mm-hmm. how does that go? How much do you tell them about what you want to see come back? Uh, I usually pretty pretty much spell it out for them. I mean, I give them – what I kind of do is I'm like, hey, there's this one writer, for instance, today I just emailed. And I was like, hey – and just, just totally just plain and boring. Uh, she just got back from Japan. I'm like, I want, I want somebody to write something about street food, specifically Japanese street food because that's just something I'm interested in. And I, you're a very smart writer and I like the way you research things and kind of put a little bit of personal in there with some research stuff and – you know, it'd be great if you could do this and, uh, you know, I'll wait for her response and we'll go back and forth on it. And then, you know, the piece will get written eventually, hopefully. And so how much of the stories that you commission are stuff that you're like genuinely interested in knowing more about? And stuff oh, everything. That's coming down? Everything. I, that's so cool. That's I'm so interested in so many things. Uh, I, I this is kind of a funny thing, but I, well, it's not funny. It's it's what it is. But I was uh, I went to my doctor a few years ago because I grew up. I had ADHD as a kid. And I went back to my doctor and I'm like, 
I can't still have this, right? Like, I'm not like, <laughs> and I actually got diagnosed, I still have ADHD, so I'm like always needing new things, and I'm always like, I can't stand one thing. I cannot, you know, I could watch a baseball game, but then like, I'm because like there's something about that where I'm like, okay, it's meditative, and I can kind of connect with this, but if you walk in my house right now, there are four open books. Like, I have to be just like doing this, doing that. I I have to, and it's just because I can't, there's just something about like if it's not like with baseball, for instance, if there that's the pace, the game is the, you know, that there's the pace of the game. When I'm reading a book, there's a certain pace that I'm not getting. So I have to read the other book and I have to do this. And it's the same thing with stuff. I, you know, I can be interested in certain stories one week and then totally different kind of story the next. So, I mean, th- that comes across in your writing, you write about music, fashion, uh, punk rock, yeah. uh, John Hughes books, uh, I mean, even the the essays that you know you edit for uh, Volume One Brooklyn like span everything that you can imagine. Yeah, so that, I will say that Volume One. That's a lot of my partner on that, Toby Carroll, who's brilliant and also is his own weird machine. That dude reads like five books a week, <laughs> and he's got two books coming out this year. And does he? He has two books. What are they? Uh, he's got a short story collection and then a small novel. Cool. He's he's nuts. I can't. How many books do you read a year? I don't know. I What's tried, the number, bro? <laughs> I tried st- so I tried doing the good. Re- I still do Goodreads. Um, I can't stick to it because I don't put like all the books I w- read for research. Yeah. Like I just reread, and I'm, I don't know if it's like this weird thing, but I was like, I reread uh, "Play It As It Lays" because uh, I'm writing this piece, and there's a kind of a, a thing about Didion in there. So I was like, you know, it's like a short, it's a fast read. I got to reread it, and I'm like, did I put this on Goodreads? I don't know. It's kind of like. People might think I'm pretty basic just reading Didion, but I'm not. So I like was like, okay, in the reviews I have to mention this is the third time I've read this book. Uh, I don't know why. Do, like, you, I'm like, do you think that people actually check your Goodreads shelves? Though? No. Well, actually, no. You know what? There's a lot of people who like like stuff on there, so it's a lot of people I don't know. So I'm not really sure, to be totally honest. I, I, I do know. a lot with Goodreads in, in my, my book publicity life, and I don't think I've had a friend request from somebody I knew for two years. Um, I still what? use the site all the time, but it's more just like to keep track of what I'm reading so yeah. I can remember. Yeah, I don't know why I use it. It's just this weird thing. I just kind of kind of like seeing what I'm doing. Um, I've had the account for a few years. And I never used it until maybe like last year, a year before. And last year it was like, you've read 34 books. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> no, I've read all like triple that at least, quadruple that. Um, Goodreads taunts me. Because I, I did the whole, like, how many books can you read in a year thing, the challenge. Yeah. And I always do one. I set one. Oh, I always get these emails now. It's like, you've only read 12% of your goal or something. And my goal's not that lofty. <laughs> it's so, like a fitness coach. Yeah. What if it's, it's screwing with you? It's like it's changing it and it's – I'm actually uh, – The machine is against you. I got that email today. It's not counting books. <laughs> well, it is, it is. I got the email today, so thanks, Goodreads. Um, and I'm actually, like, on the exact right pace that oh, I need to be on. good. But I mean, but it's also counting like like the new Walking Dead volume, like volume twenty five. Yeah. Took me twenty minutes to read, and like I counted that as a book. I will say this: I I signed up for Goodreads a year ago, thinking that it would be nice to catalog all the books that I'm yeah. reading. You know, maybe share them with friends, but less so that, and more like I just want to follow what I've read. And since I haven't logged in, but I get an email update every time Jeff does anything, and I do not know how to turn it off. Oh man! So literally every time Jeff updates something. I get an email from Goodreads, and it's the only time I hear from them. You, I, you mad, bro? A little bit. <laughs> I, I won't name names because I'm not that kind of person. But I uh, reviewed – I did a piece on a book a few years ago where just wrote about the importance of the book. I didn't do a review. I wrote about what I thought was important from this book, and that was my job at Flavorwire. Uh, and I gave the book three stars on Goodreads, and the author emailed me saying, why would you say all those nice things about my book and only give me three stars on Goodreads? And I was like, this is weird. Did you, did you answer? <laughs> no. Yeah. I did not. I How s- could you? You can't. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, There's no good answer. Yeah, it's awkward. Well, I mean, yeah. authors are, you know this because you're an author, yeah. but, uh, you know, they get neurotic when it comes to their own work because they, they put their heart and soul into it. And then, you know, I, I have authors come to me constantly that are just like, hey, this woman, like, gave me a one-star review. Like, do you have a recommendation? Like, I, I don't think that you should read your reviews. Yeah, no, never read the reviews, never read the comments. Well, this is something that's a little bit interesting from someone who's not involved in publishing or, you know, writing things in general. The It seems like reviews have gotten much closer 
to the authors themselves through the fact that it's not just one or two people writing for magazines and newspapers mm-hmm. anymore. Like you can literally get a review from anyone on the internet now, right. and it comes right to you. And I do think you know there's there's all the discussion of like criticism is dead. Criticism is I think real criticism is an art form. There are some really amazing critics out there, and they do you know they would probably scoff at me for even saying this, but they do really important work by being critical and by you know taking certain works and being like this is why this matters or doesn't or why this is good why this is bad because there needs to be that with all of these like people on Yelp and people on Amazon and people just who can write who can literally ruin a book mm-hmm. they have you know some guy in Kansas can ruin a really good book because he was a one star and he doesn't like it and he writes why and it doesn't make any sense uh, but that that can ruin the book and that's I don't know that's that to me is kind of like I don't know. I mean, by ruin it, I mean it's not going to sell as much because Amazon sees that one star. And yeah, um, <clears throat> well, a lot of these people that do that like really know how to game the system. Here, free tip for any author out there is, um, you know, are you if you are willing to put in the time, you can actually create like a list of like the top reviewers on Amazon and actually pitch them a copy of your book for review. Yeah. Um. So I do that for a lot of my authors, and um, you know, it still has to be something that they like, but. You know, there's one guy in particular that will email me back, like, uh, you know, like a five-page review that he put up. And then he'll actually say, like, can you send this to everyone you know and ask them to upvote this review? And he'll do it, whether it's one or five stars. He doesn't yeah. care. But you basically can game the system to, like, screw over an author or make them, you know, succeed. Well, that's why I think that also points to the importance of good critics, though, because I have critics that I follow for movies. Yeah. And a good critic is so hard to come by, especially somebody who writes in a voice that you appreciate. But once you find that person who you can trust to not recommend shitty content or content that is invaluable or that isn't valuable. It's very helpful to cut through the muck that is most of the things that are released. See with when it comes to literature, I actually think Amazon I, I, I say Amazon, but Amazon isn't that bad. With film, we have such a film movies are so bad right now. And film critics are the ones who are getting cut out the most. Like you see like uh, what was that site? The Dissolve that that Pitchfork had. That was a great site. They couldn't ha- they couldn't keep it up. It just didn't work. I mean, film reviews are just sort of like they're not helping. They're just like saying, you know, there there's no real discussion there. Whereas literary criticism, I still feel like is very valid. And you know, there's there's something to be said about that. It kind of keeps writers and it keeps the literary world in check. And it it's not just about certain books anymore, which I like. It's about literature in general it's about like opening it up to people who have been ignored for years that's 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 criticism i mean it's like when people say there are not enough writers of color and that's criticism and that's mm-hmm. good and that's important and that's really yielded a lot of positive results in in literature i think it's been great um speaking of that you are a literary critic yeah. um so putting <laughs> this putting this through the lens of of your work like how do you if you hate a book will you still like you know review it um, if you hate it, bec- like, uh, and then on that same note, like if a friend of yours comes up to you and says like, Hey, can you do something for, at men's journal about my book? Like, how do you react to that? What do you do? Well, I don't, uh, I remember Isaac Fitzgerald, my good friend, we were just talking about him. He got like raked through the coals for saying the whole no haters thing. Remember that when yeah. he started at BuzzFeed and yeah, people hated that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and for anyone who doesn't know it, he basically said he would not publish any negative book reviews yeah. on BuzzFeed. And I was like, dude, Isaac is one of the greatest people I know. I'm like, I get what he's saying. And we are all in the same fight trying to get people to read books. Like, it's important. We Americans don't read books. It's like if you are going to publish negative stuff, you know, whatever. I mean, I have gone after things that I think are just generally bad. But it's I'm not going to, like, trash something. Uh, I would never, you know, if, if, if I'm assigned a book and I don't like it, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm going to say what I think is wrong with it. But I do think that there is sort of an art to doing that. Um, that's what I do kind of like what is the hatch job of the year, that thing, that, <laughs> like the nastiest review of the year award. I always do find that really funny. Um, who, but, who, who publishes that? I forget. It's I think it's a British magazine. But, like, um, what's her name? Curtis... Uh, Stittenfeld. Yeah, she just had. I just read her book, and I think it's great. It's um, she's awesome. Yeah, and who do they give it to? Um, I forget who it is, but I was like, I knew whoever the reviewer was. I'm like, I'm like why did they give this him? I knew they were not going to like this book. It was a funny book, and it was a good book, and got a bad review. And then they turn around and they write something else 
positive about her. And I'm like, that's weird. I don't get how that works. Um, but when a friend comes at me with something, you know, I mean, I do – I think like if I'm doing a book roundup, I don't think there's anything wrong with putting that on uh, a roundup. I, I'm not going to like – personally, I'm going to give it to somebody else to do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, so like if my best friend goes, hey, can you review my book? I'm going to go, no, I can't review your book. I'll talk about it. I'll read it and I'll talk about it, but I'm not going to – so I know that we're getting into inside baseball here, but yeah, um, no, no, no. It's I, I appreciate it, and I think a lot of our listen, listeners will. But I was recently asked, um, and hopefully this is actually going to be published in uh, Independent Magazine next month, oh. but I was asked, you know, what sells books? And I sat and listened to this question and thought about this question for like a week because it is such a difficult thing to pinpoint because there is no silver bullet. I mean, like, yeah, you can go on Diane Reem or, or the writers who don't write podcasts or something. And, we sell um, lots of books. Uh, <laughs> everyone. Tons of books, tons, hopefully. So dozens, literally <laughs> like, dozens ho- of books. Hopefully my book is coming, that's coming out one day. In November. Um, but, but yeah, no, uh, I mean, like, yes, there are some mainstays that will sell books, right. and that's been proven. But there was also an article recently that said, like, the New York Times book review, you know, somebody tracked every review that they did for, like, a year or something. And, you know, the, the average uh, sales were, like, 200 books per review or something. Wow. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of other, like, pieces that come from that where if you have a review in the New York Times book review, then you're going to get 100 bloggers that want to talk about your book. Right. But um, I guess my question is, do you think roundups sell books? I don't know. I've seen the clickbacks, and I've, you know, seen a pretty good amount of clicks. I don't know if they buy the book. Um, but, like, with my web – with at my job, we have to do, unfortunately, the Amazon click, which, you know, it's not like IndieBound, but we have to do – that's just how it is in company policy. But um, I see a lot – for each for some certain titles, I see a lot of clickbacks. Like I could see the clicks and I'm like, oh, like 300 people clicked yes on that. They, they clicked on this. So, you know, maybe they're interested in this. Is there something besides the roundup that you see a lot of click-throughs on specifically related to books? Well, the, the reason I ask that is because in my experience and, – and I'm totally, you know, basing this off of just like – There's the ice. Yeah. I'm basing this totally off of like, you know, unsubstantiated claims, but like, I don't think that there's a ton of sales from that. Um, However, I I do think that, you know, a certain person or individual going to bat for a book can sell a ton of copies. And I mean, that works with film and it works with music and comedy and whatever. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's just as much about who writes the review or the roundup or whatever, as it is about, um, you know, uh, the outlet that they write it for. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's totally – what it is at the end of the day is the author needs to work. Mm-hmm. The author needs to get out there and they need to do readings. You know, I, I, I'm, this is the thing. On the other hand, you could say this about book reviews, but some publicists will come back and be like, well, book tours also don't matter. And the thing is you just got to work your ass off. I, I have not put out a book yet. I have seen a 100 friends put out books. And the ones that work are the ones that are successful either by sales or by good reviews mm-hmm. and, you know, that – there's the thing where it's like the effect, you know, the, the effect on your next book is that, you know, if it doesn't sell a ton, if a lot of people are talking about your book, yeah, that's good too for the next book. You know, it's, you just got to think about it in like certain terms. Like, there's so many factors that go into it. Yeah, like I mean, I am going to do the total Henry Rollins thing and just get in the van and tour and do as many interviews as I can when my book comes out. That's what I tell everyone. I'm like, just work you know mm-hmm. and the other thing the problem the weird thing is i come from is i am not a fiction writer all of my friends are fiction writers um so i've seen they have a harder time i think than non i actually think not fiction writers non-fiction is so much easier to publicize <laughs> yes um but fiction i think man you gotta really i see what they go through to get just like five people to come to their events you know mm-hmm. it's like they work their butts off and it's tough and um yeah, I've learned from them what I should try to do better. Yeah. Is there anything different that you're going to try and do when you do get to it? Like I said, just tour a lot. Um, yeah, just lots of touring, lots of talking to people. Uh, yeah, just I, – I, I guess this is as good a time as any to bring this up. <laughs> yeah. But um, talk about, like, the differences in literary culture in Chicago and New York because you were born and bred in Chicago and you mm-hmm. lived there until when? Uh, until I was about 22. And were you like a big part of the literary no, world? not at all. Okay, but you go back often, right? I go back often enough. I, I will say there was, when I was a kid, I didn't know of any literary scene in Chicago. 
there was one place I went to, and there was this place called it's still there called Quimby's, which is like all these like off weird comics and just all sorts of cool stuff uh, and like weird books and like a lot of, like that's where I like where like Lydia Lunch like a lot of like transgressive. That's it was a cool place for like a fifteen year old kid who. Uh, I don't know, 14 year old kid. I was like 14. Um, you know, but that was my literary scene and my little world of like zines and, you know, used paperbacks that I bought at the Salvation Army. That was my, I didn't know anything else about Chicago. Um, I hung out in the city all the time. That was where I lived, you know, like, but no, I didn't know anything about the literary scene until I moved to New York. And um, now it's a great place. Mm-hmm. Now it's like you've got Lindsay Hunter. Uh, You've got Curbside Press. You've got Jock Jamek. You've got all these writers. Uh, Megan, oh God, I'm going to mispronounce her name, and she's the most wonderful human being. Megan Sterisa, Sterisa? I don't know. She's got an essay collection coming out on Harper Perennial, and she is a wonderful essayist. Um, but you've got so much there, and it's it's incredible. Um, so going back there is always really a thrill. But it's it's totally different. I mean, you don't have the big media. You don't have all. You know, I mean, in New York, you literally have you know four or five different events every single night yeah. if you want. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. Cool. So, uh, I I have a handful of questions that I want to ask before we get to your story. So I'll, I'll just get those out. Um, <laughs> but uh, you write a decent amount for the Paris Review. Yes, I have. Yeah, you have in the past. Yeah. And, um, you write some weird stuff that I would never picture at the Paris Review. Yeah. And, like, you know, fashion writing, punk rock music. Um, yeah, how, do you like, the Wharton thing fit and the Fitzgerald thing fit? So. Well, the Fitzgerald thing is awesome. Um, <laughs> I actually have not read the Edith Wharton. I will. Um, but, uh, well, and I want to ask you about the Fitzgerald thing after this, but um, what was it like trying to write this stuff for the Paris Review? Like, did, who did you work with over there? Sadie. Okay. And, um, and like, what... What was the editing process like? When you pitched that story, what did what did what, what did they say? She said yes. I, it was really scary because that was like literally. I actually, I don't know if this is kind of the weirdest thing in the world. I actually turned. I got. I was coming back from vacation uh, with my then fiance, now wife, uh, and we were in St. Martin's getting on the plane. And I looked on my. I opened my laptop and I'm like, holy shit. My Paris Ki- oh, Kaiser, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Say whatever you want. My Paris review piece is up. This is the greatest moment of my life. Um, and when we touched down, it had been like retweeted all over the place, and like Japanese fashion blogs picked it up. Wait, and which it was piece is this? This was the piece on um, menswear, uh, kind of like using books as sort of a prop. Yes. And the, I was like J Crew and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this is the greatest. It was literally to me like the greatest moment of my life. Uh, as a writer. And so I kind of was like, what should I do next? And I'm like, maybe I should like pitch the New York Times a story about my first Paris review piece. Because the day after it went up, I you know, we got home and I just got drunk, like celebrating. And I went to a coffee shop and the guy that I used to serve at the coffee shop I worked at saw me. I was like, hey, and he like remembered me as this barista. And I'm like, this sucks. Like, this is like the best moment Straight of my back life. Down to Earth. Yeah. And so I pitched the New York Times and they took that piece. And that piece ended up being like number two on the website. Like, and I was like, I'm number two on the New York Times right now. That's insane. Um, but yeah, it was, it, you know, it was, it was being edited. It's, it's so hard at this point because uh, it was a great editing process. It wasn't, you know, uh, I didn't have like George Plimp the George Plimpton voice in my head like I thought I would like oh yeah she gotta do it this way <laughs> but um, yeah it was just and, and, I mean I want to clarify that I loved all of the pieces I read yeah, uh, from you on the Paris Review thank you it just like I, I'm used to them taking like you know centennial remembrances of you know uh, Henry James yeah. you know uh, so it was just kind of interesting to see that and I mean it, it worked yeah so. So Daisy Buchanan, you yes. when I email when when we email the authors on the show, we actually ask them to provide us three different stories that they couldn't tell in the past um, because you know of X, Y, and Z. And when I asked Jason, uh, he gave me a story that he wrote that was kind of like about um, the real life Daisy Buchanan from The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Um, so why why would, did he struggle to write that? Um, because that was when I was still trying to. And when I say find my voice, I always make this joke. I'm like, when I say finding their voice, it's like, it sounds like we're going out into the wilderness and like, 
you know, on peyote or something and searching for this magic like thing like that's hidden somewhere. But when I say find my voice, I mean, I was trying to find this way to connect myself mm-hmm. in my pieces without being this like, you know, just making it like this all about me. But also I have this thing where I'm like, I want to connect with my reader. Uh, I don't want to just like talk over them and be like, this is a history lesson. So I wanted to find a way to put myself in the story and explain why this is so important. Um, And that just kind of was like, that's how I went into it thinking. I'm like, I really need to write about how growing up in that part of Chicago, this was something I thought about a lot. And this is something that is important to me for many reasons. Because Fitzgerald, you know, I think we kind of hit peak Fitzgerald again a couple of years ago when the Gatsby movie came out. But you know, he's the first writer I ever really loved. And like the first like literary big writer um, when I was like 14 and I became obsessed with him. And, you know, just, it just, I was trying to put myself back in that place, but also write something that, you know, tone wise was proper for, you know, that George Plimpton wouldn't have. That was a like ridiculously well-researched piece too. I had never heard any of what you talked about. Yeah. Um, it's so everybody will put it in the show notes, but you should read this piece because it's it's a very unique and original take on um, one of the influences of The Great Gatsby. But uh, did you already know all that stuff going in? Yeah, I knew about I mean, I've I've known about her. You just did like a, a yeah. shitload of research just about F. Research. Scott Fitzgerald's back in the day? Yep. Okay. Yeah, did a lot. <laughs> and it was cool because I still tweet it like once a year when it's – and, like, last year, like, one of my favorite writers was like, this is a great piece, and retweeted it. I was like, I did it. <laughs> yes. Who, who, was, who was the writer? Bill Buford. Okay. And I was like, I did it, finally. Somebody likes me. We When, when the Lev Grossman episode came out, Lev tweeted it, and then uh, William Gibson retweeted it. And, yeah. And that, that's cool. That's that's when I'm just like, holy, we made it. Yeah. Um, the Rock retweeted me yesterday. I saw that. What? I want actually. I'm so glad. <laughs> Sorry, you this is that not up. William Gibson. No, wait, wait, wait. No, no. Yeah, but The Rock though. has 10 million followers. It was the best moment of my life. <laughs> what was the tweet? I wrote something about him. Right, but do you remember the specific tweet? Oh yeah, it was like hashtag like uh, <laughs> like Hump Day motivation or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, boom. So how many people read that piece after you after he tweeted that? Oh, we, it's like in the hundred thousands at this point. Wow! Yeah, it's ridiculous. It was. It, keep in mind, this was a piece about how the Rock's Instagram account <laughs> is is like crazy motivating. It is. It's great. <laughs> uh, I could go all day about the Rock, but I won't. It's uh, all there. All right. So one question, then we're gonna get to your story. Yeah. Um, you have a book coming out mm-hmm. in November, uh, the very end of November. Yes. From William Morrow. Yeah. Um, and it is called Searching for John Hughes, right? Mm-hmm. Um. How is the process of writing a book different from, uh, from like all of the prolific and, and um, ridiculously prolific writing that you do everywhere else? Well, I think sort of the mantra I'm going to go with when I talk to anybody about this is, if you ever think you're ready to write a memoir, even if you get you sell the memoir, you're not ready to write the memoir because <laughs> did, you, it's did you sell that the that that the, the John Hughes memoir. Oh, that, I'm, that sorry, I'm sorry. You're, I, I was I was thinking biography. My, oh yeah, I'm no, sorry. no, no. The memoir. No, okay. the book is. Yeah, I was not ready to write a memoir, and I did, and it was really draining and really hard, and really uh, it, it kind of fucks with you a lot because yeah. um, you know you're sitting with it for like. For me, I'm fast, but I you know I took my time on this book, and so I guess like what, six seven months I was sitting with it. Wow, and you know you're kind of like trying to find a way to like sculpt. Because my editor, who's brilliant, Margo Weissman, I love her very much. She's great. Uh, she was like, I don't want you to just write about trying to write John Hughes' biography. I want you to write your story. And I was like, why? Why does anybody want to know my story? And then I was like thinking about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, my story totally does connect with why I'm so obsessed with John Hughes. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I had to kind of like write about all these things that, you know, I don't really try to think about or really talk about. Um and that was really difficult. It was really incredibly difficult. It, uh, it, I want to come back to this in a minute because it has a lot to do with the story that you're going to tell us. But um, Fred Waitskin, who wrote Searching for Bobby Fischer, mm-hmm. is is kind of a mentor of mine. And, and he and I are, are, you know. I actually like the title, by the way. I know that I've seen the the, the movie. Searching but, for Bobby Fischer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I kind of was thinking about that. Well, he, he and I, uh, I, I serendipitously came together a couple of years ago and have been like very quick friends since. Um, so I actually got lunch with him today, and he it, the the whole point of the show is that Kyle and I 
both consider ourselves writers, but we never actually write anything. Um, and we, uh, and, and whenever we have a story that's actually like really compelling, um, we're just terrified of the results because it all really has to do with like personal things that have happened to us. Yeah. And so I've harped on this a lot with, with Fred and he has given me a ton of advice about, you know, what I should be doing to take myself out of the story and, and write it as fiction or as nonfiction creatively. Um, and, but it, I mean, you just wrote like an entire book about yourself. Yeah. So what were some of the techniques that you used? I wrote a timeline. Literally, I sat down when I'm like, okay, I get started on this. I put down a timeline, which if you ever want to have the worst, most terror, like the deepest, most existential, just fucked up episode of your life, do that. Just make a timeline because I'm 34, 35 at the time. I make this this is little timeline. I'm like, this is what I've done in 35 years. And like, you know, you kind of just like mark down all these things. And I mean, I literally worked on the timeline for like a week, just like every little thing I could think of, put it on there. And I just kind of stared at it. And I'm like, this is a terrifying thing I just did. I don't know why I just, because we, you know, we, I don't think we, we, we have moments of reflection in our lives. We don't really, we're not forced to really have to reflect. Like things come back to us. Things come flooding back to us at certain points. I actively sat down and was like, I'm just going to draw out my life on this one line on this piece of paper. It was a large piece of paper, but that was really scary. So I did that. How many things did you misremember? Uh, I don't miss. I actually don't misremember anything. I'm. I have a ridiculously strong memory. I don't know why. It's kind of <laughs> kind of a weird curse. It's like I feel like one of those like vampires who they you know he lives like eight hundred years. He's like I'm cursed with my memories. And <laughs> How deep does it go? Could you put it down day by day, or is it mostly week no, to not week day by day. It's like yeah, week yeah. to week event. You know and. Any event that I couldn't like totally like trace, I just kind of like work backwards or forwards, and I'm like, okay, this this is when this was then, and this is this, and um, so I mean, doing that was really tough. But I mean, as, as somebody who like kind of puts himself in a lot of what he writes, um, without trying to be like making myself the story, like I said with the Fitzgerald thing, um, I had to be the story, which was really difficult. So I had to figure out a way to sort of balance like personal storytelling with I sort of wanted there to be some element of without making it sound boring criticism like talking about Hughes and his movies but kind of finding ways to circle it back to me because that's what the book you know has to be about so yeah I mean I had to drudge up a lot of stuff um I'm not close with my family uh you know a lot of people are like I couldn't write my memoir until my parents are dead and I was like I don't talk to my parents you know I don't get along with anybody in my family so I guess that's fine um, so just revisiting a lot of that and trying to figure out a way to write it was really hard. So I'd sit down day by day and certain, certain parts I could write like 3000 words. I'm like, cool. I just wrote 3000 words. This is great. And then certain parts I would just sit there for like days, just like stuck, like holding myself back personally. Cause I didn't want to like revisit certain things and write about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I forced myself to, and, and are you like yeah. scared? Yeah. This thing's coming out soon. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I am. I'm really scared. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm totally fine with talking about it, but like there's, you know, a lot of stuff that my friends don't really know about me and, you know, it's, it's a memoir. You mm -hmm. don't know how people are going to react and yeah, it's weird. It's a weird, you know, so I write as much as I can and not think about it uh, for the time being. So cool. So. So now might be a good time to get into the story. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we we have this this whole idea where like you know everybody has something that they can't write, mm -hmm. um, something that they struggled with because of a million different reasons. And we talked to you a little bit about this, and we've we've kind of hit on this already in earlier on in the interview. But um, let's take a deep dive into you know the thing that you are scared to write. Well, I could. I mean, I could say it was this book. I mean, I could just take I could take the easy road, but um, that would be the easy way to say it because I was really terrified. I started writing it, and I was like, "Oh shit!" But the thing is, what a chunk of the book is about is about failing to write another book. Um, and ultimately, I realized that was the book I couldn't write was John Hughes's biography. Um, I was obsessed with this idea, and that was the thing. It was this idea I had, 
And I had all these things in place just to sort of hold me back. And I put up all these roadblocks in front of myself to actually make it a reality. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. I can write anything. That's the thing. I can pretty much write anything. I don't – I try to be as fearless as possible when it comes to I'm not like some like crazy journalist who's going to like jump into some war-torn country. But when it comes to like something I want to write, I can do it. I, I just – I have to do it. But I realized that I was – part of this memoir was like closure because I had been so fixated on even like up until like a few weeks before I started writing the book, I had kind of an offer to be connected with John Hughes's family. And I was like, all these years later, I'm like, man, maybe I should do that. And then finally I wrote the book and I was like, I'm never going to write John Hughes's biography. I, cause it's just something it's so personal and it that's that I've worked myself up about it so much that it's just never going to happen. Um, so, I mean, like, talk to us about why, though. Like, you, you have an awesome piece in BuzzFeed and a second one in the Paris Review. I don't know which one came first, but... Paris Review, weirdly enough. Okay. Um, and you, you kind of go into this, uh, but, I mean, like, you love John Hughes. And, and I also, you know, I also have a lot of issues with him, and that's kind of the problem. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, his... There's a lot of really problematic stuff in his films uh, that you, when you kind of watch them enough, you kind of finally get you kind of realize um his politics were a little out of whack there's a lot of stuff that i don't like yeah. um but yes i do like and you hit on those in in the essays um you know it's all white people it's yes. uh, you know very specific to you know one kind of like sexuality right. um but what makes it really difficult to write about personally like what prevents you from thinking that eventually you'll be able to tackle a subject about like him yeah well, that's the thing, and that's what the book kind of uncovered is that I've put my – I think I, I, I really like it when writers can kind of connect personally with art because I think that's the importance of art is that we each come away with something. It's not like a collective thing. Like we can't all go look at a Pollock painting and be like, we all feel this way about this. I feel like we should all – but I do think a critic can help sort of stimulate certain thoughts about things. And with Hughes, you know, I've become sort of a critic of his, I think, at this point, but to a point where it's like my obsession, where I've just thought about him so much. And it also has this real personal thing that I wanted to be in one of his movies. I literally thought that's what life was like. And, you know, I, I attached most of my life to that idea that that's normal. That's what life is like. That's what it should be. And then it didn't happen and my world just kind of like crushed when I realized, oh, my life isn't like that and it's never going to be like that. And so there's just a lot of like baggage from years of just just being with his films and thinking about them, but also putting myself in this per- in this position where they're uh, like a text, you know, and I just it's just so hard to like pull myself away from that from so from a conditioning yourself. So it's just I finally, I think, put that away. You feel like there would be too much of you in the biography. Yes, absolutely. Like 100%. And also, biographies are – they're impossible. They're so – good biographies are so hard to write. You can write garbage biographies. There are plenty of garbage biographies out there. But a good, great biography, there is a lot of work and there's a lot of crafting that you have to put into that. Um, and I don't, I don't have that skill. Which uh, is kind of funny because you – I mean – is your BuzzFeed piece in your book? Um, kind of. I mean, I guess the book is a larger version of the BuzzFeed piece. Um, I would say a good chunk of the book kind of talks about my childhood. Yeah. Um, like really in depth, kind of like talking about like uh, my parents. And um, I, I've suffered depre- – I've dealt with depression my entire life. Uh talking about that and stuff like that. So there's a lot more like kind of like opening it up and um, kind of trying to explain as much as I can this obsession Um, because I don't think like a guy moving to New York to write a book is a very interesting story. Um, But I think there is something to be said about how we look at art and how we perceive and what we take away from certain art and artists. And that's what ultimately I think the book is about. And also failing. It's about failing because I failed to write this book. Um, and I don't think we're really good at accepting failure as a culture. We don't like to talk about uh, how worried we are about failing or how, you know, failure does really make us who we are. Can and, you, yeah. 
was, can you take us back to the moment when you realized finally was there like a singular moment that you can remember where you were like this is never going to happen for me uh i feel like that's the good part of the book okay um <laughs> don't give it away don't give it away <laughs> but yeah there definitely was and it was it was very pathetic and very like everything you could it was sort of like that you know that scene in uh uh, you guys watch Game of Thrones? Yes. I don't really. I don't really watch. But I know this scene where they made her walk naked through the yeah. yes, the shame, it, it, shame. Yeah, it was shame. kind of like that. It was sort of like it had that kind of feeling. Like so, you walk naked through a street. Almost, <laughs> I almost did. But uh, who threw uh, the poop? Nobody threw the poop, but there was a lot of like weird sludge involved. <laughs> um, and let's say I was in a really weird part of Pennsylvania, and yeah. Oh, oh there's some weird sludge there. Yeah, there's a lot of darkness. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's let's do this. Let's uh, have you give us like sixty seconds on searching for John Hughes, and you know it's probably a good place to end it. Yeah. What do you want me to just talk about it? Yeah. Just... Tell us about the book. I want everybody to go out and buy it. So I've, you can pre- pre-order it on Amazon. We'll put a link up. Um, you know, it's not out for another like six months, but uh, <laughs> you know, I follow Jason on on Twitter at I'm Jason Diamond, and and his website is is what is your website? It's uh, com forward slash. Actually, now it's going to be jasondiamond.net. Oh, look oh, at man. you. I'm legit. <laughs> Why yes. the .net? Because I couldn't get the .com. Oh. Because I'm fighting uh, Dr. Jason Diamond in uh, Beverly Hills, who's the 90210 surgeon. There is so many Jason Diamonds. I had so much trouble Googling you. Yeah. Is he a plastic surgeon? I think he is. There's another Jason Diamond who's really wonderful. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to other Jason Diamond um, <laughs> who always redirects tweets at me. A lot of them just like, man, Jason Diamond just said this stupid shit. And he's like, I think you mean this Jason Diamond. And uh, he's very nice. And I like him very what much. What a nice man. Yeah, he's a great name, yeah. doppelganger. I really... How often have you... Uh, you know, like run into this guy. Never, never met him. He lives in New York. One day we'll meet. Maybe we'll have like a Jason Diamond. Wait, he lives in New York City. I think he does. Um, oh man, That's is so writers funny. who don't write going to be the one who brings the Jason Diamonds together finally? Maybe oh, he's a listener. I'm right. tweeting this at him. Yeah, he's a good dude. Um, I like him a lot. Uh, <laughs> he's the best. He's literally the best. I have friends who are like uh, X, like the person with my name just got an email for this bill and it's sent to me. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, that's not funny. That person's like going to be in debt because you think. <laughs> but meanwhile, Jason Diamond, the other Jason Diamond, is very nicely like, you know, telling me, telling like he's like redirecting praise or venom in my direction. And I've done a, a ton of research into this fact, so I'm like fairly confident that it's true that I am the only Jeff Umbro wow. on the planet. Number one. The, oh, wow. That's not true. That cannot be true. I, I, prove me wrong. Find another one. Damn. I've I've done like a ridiculous amount of research into this because I'm constantly getting like random Facebook messages from like Umbros out in like Umbria, <laughs> Italy, and like so I've I'm just curious and I'm the only one. Damn. There's only like 250 Umbros in the United States. Wow, what? That's yeah. There's a lot of diamonds. Yeah, I yeah. believe that. Yeah, it's um, a good name. Thank you. I think there's only one other Kyle Craner who is somewhere in South Dakota. Let's and get him. Water. Let's go get him. Yeah, yeah. we could find that guy. Yeah, that's it. You're like <laughs> I, the last dodo. You're, that's it. He's a lawyer, though. He that's might have, fine. He may, you he might have a of, leg up on me. You can so, get rid of lawyers. <laughs> get rid of that was really dark. No, I'm sorry, buddy. We're not going to yeah. get rid of you. We're not coming he's, to South yeah. Dakota. Um, All right. Search, searching for John Hughes. Give us a pitch. Um, like I said, it's a book about how we connect with art and the things we will do to kind of comfort ourselves into thinking that we are part of that art. Um, for me, it was years of watching John Hughes movies obsessively and I mean every single John Hughes movie like I will defend Dutch to the death for whatever sick reason um, 101 Dalmatians I like it I think it's good Miracle on 34th Street is great his remake of that is <laughs> don't fantastic. disagree yeah don't disagree. that's a really dark well done film but um yeah it's basically kind of like looking at uh just growing up in the suburbs um you know, the way our families fuck us up uh, and how growing up in the 80s and the early 90s, how everything was kind of given a happy ending and I was expecting a happy ending and there was not. I mean, there was eventually a happy ending. I got married and I'm a writer and that's great, but there was just a lot of really tough stuff, a lot of really sad. I actually really realized, I was like, this is a really weird book because it's really sad and really funny, which I guess the two things work well together, but because behind all sadness there's humor and behind all humor there's sadness um but yeah it's basically looking at 
how we deal with things and how we also kind of don't. Um, I don't do a good job of dealing with my problems and I hide behind this idea that I'm going to write this biography and I go to great lengths to meet John Hughes and many of the people in his movies, which I thought was pretty funny, like almost like Kirby or Enthusiasm-esque, like Larry David sort of awkward encounters. But reading it, I'm like, oh, man, that's cringe-inducing. I am an awkward, awkward man. Uh, but, yeah, so that's kind of the pitch. So go buy the book. Go buy the yeah. book. It's got so a good cover. We're going to unveil it soon, I think. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's nice. All right, so that's Jason Diamond. You can find him on Twitter at I'm Jason Diamond. You can find him online at jasondiamond.net. Coming soon. <laughs> Coming <laughs> soon in November. And, uh, well, I mean, uh, the, the no, website will yeah. be sooner. But the book will be out in November. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, IndieBound, wherever books are sold. Uh, pre-order your copy. It's called Searching for John Hughes. And thank you so much, Jason. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. It is really great to hear someone else note that Home Alone is their favorite John Hughes movie. Also, if you ever run into Jason on the street, uh, definitely ask him if his hat has a koala on it. He will love you for it. He definitely won't shame you for not knowing it's a Chicago Cubs hat. We, you know, you know, we didn't put that in the show, right? So Kyle is, is making fun of himself because... I'm not making fun of myself. He saw a Jason's Chicago Cubs hat and asked if it was a koala there. Listen, if you look at a Cubs hat, if you look at a Cubs hat and you don't see a koala, I'm not sure I want to be friends with you. Yeah, but the fact is you didn't know it was the Chicago Cubs. Here's the thing. I thought it was a Cubs hat. I was like maybe on the fence a little bit. I was like, oh, you know what? Jason's cool enough where he probably has some obscure Chicago team that sort of looks like a koala because it's funny because it's not a cub. Turns out it's just a cub and I'm an idiot. Yeah, I won't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, thanks yeah. for tuning in. Um, check out the show next week. We have a surprise guest. Uh she is awesome. She's fantastic. And uh, you can find us online at www.podcast.com, newsletters, uh, tinyletter.com, slash www.podcast. Twitter is www.podcast. Um, and there's a bunch of other places to find us that I won't bore you with. I want to thank Ryan Dan for doing the music at the top and the bottom of the show. Ryan Dan is from Holland Patton Public Library, and you should check him out online at hollandpattonpubliclibrary.com. Peace. God, I hate it when you say that.